Okay, friends, we'll begin. <clears throat> I like to follow the old adage of, if you can't help, do no harm. So I'll answer these questions to the best of my ability. And if it is beyond my ability, I'll have to decline. And you can ask those questions to maybe Bhanteji another time. Please explain meditation on rapture, also tranquility. What do they counteract? Um, well, yeah, that's one of those where I'm probably going to have to, I'll explain a little bit of what I know and then leave it at that. So rapture and tranquility um, are qualities that arise in meditation uh, due to, uh, in, in the beginning, they are talking about jhana, right? <clears throat> the first steps to jhana are the first, uh, factors in the jhanic uh, um, uh, workout is that you are quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states. Right. So there's no craving, there's no desire at this point, and you also are not dealing with sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and ill will, and um, sensual desire, and all of that stuff. So all of that is temporarily abated. And as you develop your, um, you know, your practice from there going to the jhanas, this is where rapture arises, piti. And that eventually leads to a tranquility. This is something that arises naturally on its own through the practice. Um, I don't know if I can say they counteract anything, so I'm not going to go into any further than that. <clears throat> How is meditation affected by body position? Folded legs, legs under body, sitting on a low bench, sitting on a chair, standing, walking. Um, well, just briefly uh, in terms of and you know, half of these are, or most of them are sitting, and then they're standing and walking. Um, no matter what you're doing, sitting, standing, or walking, in this regard, you're basically following the same practice. Um, depending on what type of walking meditation uh, you follow, you're maybe using a different object. Um, I do know there are some teachers who teach walking meditation where you actually follow your breath just like as you would um, when you're sitting down, um, otherwise you follow the, your, you know, the feeling of your feet as it's touching the, the ground, and feelings of all your, you know, basically from the knee down, all those feelings that arise from from walking. So, in, in that regard, what you're doing is you're developing concentration, the same as you're developing concentration while you're sitting down and following the breath. It's um, a different kind of uh, concentration, at least in the fact that you're doing it with your eyes are open. Right? The, the Buddha gave five benefits to doing walking meditation. Um, the, the one that's important to what I want to speak about is that the, the um, concentration developed from walking meditation is durable, meaning that the concentration you develop from walking when your eyes are open is long-lasting and it's harder to lose than the concentration you develop when you're sitting with your eyes closed. So I guess that's really um, in terms of how the meditation is affected. You're pretty much doing the same thing. It's just a different mode uh, of the same practice. Now in terms of uh, folded legs, legs under the body, like the sitting positions, <clears throat> Whatever works for you is, is how you should practice. Right? There's, you know, everybody, you know, you hear, oh, we should sit in the lotus position and then we'll be all nice and peaceful and stable and then we'll all attain nibbana. Right? And <laughs> most of us are probably never going to get into the lotus position. Right? And I did yoga seven or eight years. I still, I mean, I can't do the lotus position. You know, and... Bhante G didn't do lotus position until he was in his 60s, something like that. So um, 
what I would say is whatever is stable, uh, the, what I've found, I've gone through this whole multi-year journey, this quest of trying to find the perfect sitting position for me. And I went from everything from one cushions, two cushions, three cushions, side cushions. I even did no cushions. One retreat here, I was just meditating right on the, the concrete, right? Just trying to find this perfect, wonderful, stable, amazing um, position. And I never found it. <laughs> I'm not, you know, the, the interesting thing, what I found with the meditation is that it is important, it is very important to have some kind of stability. The, the longer you can be comfortable in a position, the easier it will be for you to be able to get into deeper states of concentration. Right? So if you're sitting down and within 10 minutes you're having to move and your pains and this and that, the, you're not going to get much concentration. Right? You'll be able to develop a lot of insight into pain and dealing with that and, and how that works. I sat for years where you guys were and, and sitting here and, you know, six hours a day going, oh, and examining the pain and all that kind of stuff. But it's more important, the two factors are comfort, being comfortable and being stable. That's the most important things. So if, you, if you're comfortable and stable using a bench, I use a bench when we have to meditate for long periods of time, that's fine. Um, using a chair, whatever position is best for you for, for comfortable and stable meditation. Those are the two important things. Um, it also, I've also been told, uh, and I've seen it in, in my own practice as well, that really for the most stability, you want some kind of a position where your knees are below your hips. And for most of us, that's pretty. <laughs> we need some kind of either multiple cushions or something like that. Um, to do that but uh, for sitting position that's usually what is the most stable um, so the less your the less your body is bothering you I mean I, what, what I'll say is probably the deepest states of concentration I've ever been in was at my office desk in my office at work as a lay person right because when you sit in a chair it's like all the pain, everything, you don't even have to worry about any of that. And concentration comes nice. But I will say, though, that you do miss out. I, I think that working with the pain and, and, and sitting and trying to do what you can um, and observing how your interaction with the body and, and pains and all that kind of stuff, I, I think that's very beneficial to the practice. Um, so as long as it's meditation pain. There's a difference between real pain and meditation pain. Real pain is you had like an accident or a sports injury or whatever, and you can actually permanently damage your body. Meditation pain is you're sitting for two hours and you're just not used to it and your abs are falling and your back's hurting because there's tension and all these kind of things. That you can survive. That's not going to permanently damage you. That's just meditation pain. You're just not, uh, um, your body is not ready uh, it's not there. It's training itself to, to sit for that long of a period. Sure, about that. We actually had uh, two, three years ago, we had a gentleman get up and he just went and fell right down. So it is important to, to get up very slowly, um, especially if you've been sitting for a while. I have been following breathing meditation all along. I am not sure how to transfer to Vipassana, which I would very much like to do. Thanks for your tips and advice with Metta. <clears throat> so... One thing that uh, I will say is that Vipassana is not a technique. Like the Buddha didn't teach this is the Vipassana technique in the suttas. 
Vipassana is a state of mind. It's a, a state of seeing deeply. So when you are following your breath, and indeed, actually, the, the Buddha says that the four foundations of mindfulness are fulfilled from mindfulness of breathing. So when you are following your breath, when you're examining your breath, you are fulfilling those four foundations of mindfulness. Um, so you can do Vipassana just by following your breath. But if you want to you know, do some kind of contemplative um, practice, you know, Vipassana is seeing impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. He'll examine. Right? When, you, when you are watching your breath, it is always changing, always changing. When you see every aspect of the breath, the air coming in, there's a pause, there's tension because your lungs are filled. Air going out, there's a little anxiety because you have no air, right? And then the air comes back in and you're, oh, okay, I'm, I'm okay, I'm gonna live one more second at least, yeah. So you're following these, you see this impermanence, impermanence. Really, the, the way the Buddha teaches this practice in the suttas is that you develop your concentration to the point where you are in very strong jhanic states, and in those states, you, um, you point your mind to seeing these things, seeing impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, selflessness. Of course, we're all not jhana practitioners, and I know I'm not, so, you know, we can't, uh, we, we can still do these practices um, while we are, you know, just practicing regular mindfulness of breathing. But don't feel like, oh, mindfulness of breathing, yeah, this is just like what I have to do now, and it's kind of boring, and, and you know, but I'll get to the real stuff later. Mindfulness of breathing is the practice. If you read the suttas, you know, thousands and thousands of pages, Vipassana as a word is very, very rarely in the actual suttas. But what is in the suttas is mindfulness of breathing, jhanas, practicing, practicing following your breath. So what I would say is examine, investigate your breath. And I, I don't know if it was Bhante Ji or, or I, I heard somebody, some teacher years ago, um, the question of the person complained that mindfulness of breathing is boring. Watching your breath is boring. And I'm pretty sure it was Bhante Ji who said, if, you're, if your mindfulness of breathing is boring, you're not doing it right. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I guess that's pretty much all I have to say about that. How is walking meditation different from just walking? Well, you can do anything, right? And what is the meditation different? You can, how is lying meditation different than just lying down? The difference is heedfulness or unmindful, uh, mindfulness, mindful or unmindful, heedful or non-heedful. You are examining, you are investigating that experience while you're doing it. You know? When you're walking, <clears throat> there, there's, you know, there's three kinds of feeling, base feelings, right? Pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and neither pleasant nor uh, unpleasant feeling. Most people just call that neutral feeling. What's a neutral feeling? Your breath is a neutral feeling. The f your feet while you're walking is a neutral feeling. Why is it neutral? Because you don't pay attention to it normally. Right? When you're going about doing your daily life in eight hours of, of working, how often do you think, oh, that's right, I'm breathing, I'm still alive. No, the breath is just doing its thing. It's doing its thing whether you are aware of it or not. Your feet are doing their thing when you walk whether you're aware of it or not. The difference is becoming aware of it, using that activity as a way to develop concentration and a way to develop wisdom. And 
I'm a huge proponent of walking meditation. And walking meditation is a very, very, very good way to develop both concentration and wisdom. So please don't feel like it's just, oh, I'm just taking a stroll and it's kind of boring and what am I supposed to be doing? Examine your feet. Examine, when, when you start to, you can start to see like how the, the, the tendons and everything, how everything works. Like if you do standing meditation, right? There's no such thing as you're standing straight 100% and you're like a rock, right? If you're paying attention, you're noticing how all the tendons are keeping you from swaying back and forth like this. They're keeping you balanced while you're standing, right? The same thing with walking meditation. You can see all of these things when you're heedful, when you're paying attention. And that's the difference between just walking and walking with a purpose, walking with uh, mindfulness and full awareness. Is emptiness our original nature? Don't we have to let go of all thoughts, including our method, in order to experience Nibbana? Um, there's no original nature in Buddhism, or at least not in Theravada Buddhism. I mean, there's no origin at all. And the Buddha said that he went back as far as he could, and he found no, he could not find a beginning to this mass of samsara. So there's really no talk, at least in, in the Pali scriptures, uh, the, the Nikayas, there's no talk of like an origin, or is there like a, is a, you know, people will say, if our mind is polluted with these defilements, is, is, you know, there's, is there an origin? Is there a time where our minds weren't deluded by these defilements? Who knows? I mean, the Buddha didn't say. If he knew, he didn't say. Most likely because it's not really conducive to the actual practice. Um, and he was really big on that. You read the suttas, people ask him all kinds of questions. Sometimes he'll just say, invalid answer. <laughs> So um, I, I don't know if I can really speak more on, on that. Um, don't we have to let go of all thor thoughts in order to experience Nibbana? <clears throat> well, I mean, I, I guess I would say that, uh, you know, letting go of what, we, of what we consider to be a self or a view is very important. Um, I don't know about letting go of all thought. Thought is just thought. It, it, it occurs to us in our mind, right? Um, I, we can, <clears throat> when thoughts that are unskillful come to our mind, we can let them go. We, we don't have to hold them as mine. We don't have to identify with them as me or myself, right? So we can let them go. But if we have skillful thoughts, um, you know, at least for us regular worldlings, we don't we don't want to you know let them go. I guess we don't want to attach to them either. We want to use them in a skillful manner. And in the end, um, yeah, yeah, you you let go of good and bad. You let go of merit and demerit, as they said in the suttas. Um, <clears throat> the Buddha says that the Dhamma, this the teaching, the practice is like a raft. Right? When you you take the raft to reach the further shore, and you don't. Once you go to the other shore, you don't need the raft again, and you just walk away. It's kind of silly if you're walking through the you know the jungle with a raft, uh, you know, on your shoulder. I mean, I guess like military guys do that or something. But in terms of the practice, you don't need to to do that. So, um, so I guess I would say you have to, in order to experience nibbana, you'd want to let go of the idea that those thoughts are yours. I live in a city where there is much anger, restlessness, and greed. Anger, restlessness, and greed. Doesn't matter. You won't escape that from, from leaving the city. Is it best to move if I want to develop spiritually? Actually, anger, restlessness, and greed. Same as all you guys, everybody. You can't escape that. <clears throat> um, now, of course... Especially in the beginning of your practice, 
having, being able to like come to a place like this for a retreat, um, finding a place uh, that you can sit and, and meditate in quiet, that's important, of course. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of your daily life, no matter where you are, you're gonna have anger, you're gonna have all of these. Anger, restlessness, greed. It's, it's greed, hatred, and delusion. Everybody has that, unless you're an arahant. And I don't think there's any arahants around here. Probably not in any of the cities either. I don't know, there might be. But uh, <clears throat> I think that, or, well, it's kind of funny because in all honesty, I have a kind of an aversion to cities myself. And I've never been, I grew up in the suburbs in New Jersey. And you know, when I think of New York, I'm like New York, Philadelphia. Like I'm not a big fan of cities myself. And of course, in, in, you know, think, coming from the suburbs, I'm like one day I'm gonna be in the mountains. And here I am, right? <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> yeah, even still, I, I've, it's an aversion, right? And, and one of, part of my plan actually is to go live in a city, in, in a, a monastery in the city for a time, maybe a year or whatever in the future, to get over that aversion, right? To, to be able to be in a place. <clears throat> Eventually, you want to just, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on around you, you can find quiet and peace and contentment in your mind, right? If, you're, if you practice enough and you'll be able to be, no matter what situation you're in, you'll be able to be calm, and peaceful and have a quiet mind. So that's very important, especially even with, uh, like, at, at work. Right? My job was crazy. I did child protective services, and you know, there was always emergencies and all kinds of stuff going on. Um, and, and the difference between when I first started it and after I became a practitioner and was meditating for a couple years is like night and day. Right? And I can be in a situation, and I can, even though my whole body there's just this feeling of like you have no time to waste you you have to do this is this you can say listen okay i'm going to stop for 30 seconds i'm just going to breathe and just calm yourself bring your mind uh to quiet so you can be mindful in the moment and do what you need to do in that moment in a wise way so no, I think you can use the city to develop spiritually. Um, I think that you can, uh, you know, you can come out to the country every once in a while to, to get a break. But I guess in the end, if you really feel like you need to move, the, you know, uh, I can't really give you that advice. It's, it's your life. It's your practice. How whatever you feel like you need to do to, for the betterment of your practice, you do. When is inquiry, as one develops mindfulness as a factor in real practice, at what point does one trust that genuine inquiry has begun, that it isn't a hasty or agitated mind seeking answers? Examine your mind. All right, if you see that, is it a hasty and agitated mind seeking answers? Right, examine your mind. <clears throat> Chitta Nupasana, examining the state of your mind. Is there greed, hatred, and delusion in your mind at that point? Is, there, is your mind, you know, like you said, agitated? Whenever you have that question, hmm, directly put your power of your enlightenment factor of investigation to that, right? <clears throat> that is the way that you'll, that you'll know. And maybe you won't know. You know, maybe, you know, there's, we're all at different levels and, you know, we're not all Sotipana and, and, or Arahants or whatever. You know, we can only examine and investigate and understand we're at to wherever we're at, to whatever level we're at. So <clears throat> I think that whatever you are really, whenever you are really, Honestly putting forth an effort to examine something with a, with a, a question in your mind. Right? Hmm, what is this? Let me examine this. Then you're examining. You're doing it right. I mean, whether, whether you're doing it, uh, you know, I, I don't know if 
a genuine inquiry or not. I, I mean, I suppose if you if you're doing maybe like walking meditation and you, you're hating it or something like that, and you're like, I really want to sit down. And you think, oh, I know, I can investigate this sitting down. And then you go and sit down. Well, then obviously that was an intention um, that was used to get what you wanted. Otherwise, an investigation is investigation. Do enlightened people have insight and no need for hindsight? Uh, I don't, I guess I can answer this uh, just briefly in terms of, I, I wouldn't say that enlightened beings are like uh, omniscient or omnipotent, they know exactly everything, like what's going to happen. Um, a good example of this is, is the monk's rules, the vinyat. Right, uh, the Buddha did not say, "Okay, I'm awakened. Okay, now we have these these monks. Okay, here's 227 rules." No, he said he waited. Right, he said when there somebody did some monk did something really stupid and screwed up, and and people got pissed off about it, and they came to the Buddha, and he's like, "Okay, you're really foolish. Now there's a rule." So, I, I mean, I. I guess that's what I would say in terms of that. I mean, a, a Buddha, I guess, even has to examine the situation that is happening, you know? Well, I mean, I guess, who's to say? Maybe he did know that all of this stuff was going to happen, because if you know greed, hatred, and delusion, you understand it. But I think maybe it was a skillful means that he didn't just throw out a bunch of rules right away. And indeed, uh, the Mahakasapa, who's the... Uh, the Buddha's uh, foremost disciple of asceticism, he asked at one point, he says, Buddha, what happened like 20 years ago? All the monks were really, really good practitioners and they were all arahants and things were good. And now there's like no arahants or barely any arahants left and all the monks are doing all these bad things. And the Buddha says, well, <clears throat> back then, the people who became, you know, who became the first disciples, they were already at a level where they didn't need these training rules. And now over time, as it's become more popular, more people have wanted to become monastics for a variety of different reasons. And they do all these crazy, stupid things. And now we need the rules. As simple as that. So I guess that's the, the best way I can attempt to answer that question. Emptiness, sunyata. <laughs> ah, here we go. And paying honor to the Buddha image with palms together, what is touched and why? Oh, okay. Um, oh, that's a good question. Because I don't know. <laughs> From what I do know is it, it's usually the positions like around here. And I don't know if it's like head, heart, and, or knees, but I know the positions it's here to the chest and then around the knees. Um, whether that has actual specific meaning, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, most likely it does, but I've never been told it and I don't know it. <clears throat> I think the most important thing um, to think about is when you are doing, you know, if you are doing the practice of bowing um, to the statue is to, to concentrate and focus on the reason why you're doing it, right? Whether it's just the basic um, contemplating the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, or showing gratitude to them, or sometimes people have like an aspiration that they say every time they bow. That's the important thing to concentrate on and to the reason why you bow too. You know, that, um, and it also does wonders for helping you develop humility. That's a, a very important part of the, the bowing as well. Should one practice all four of the foundations of mindfulness or would it be beneficial to stick with one object? Hmm. 
I think there's a couple of different ways that you can think about this. Um, I think it is uh, traditional that you would practice one, you know, you think, okay, today I'm going to concentrate on the body as the body, right? <clears throat> and so that's one way of doing it. Um, another way of doing it, uh, I would say, is uh, Tanasara Bhikkhu, uh, Bhikkhu translates four foundations of mindfulness as four frames of reference. And one of the things that I found beneficial in thinking about it in that regard is when you have some kind of an experience that's happening, right? you can actually examine all four of those frames of reference within that one experience. Right? What's going on with your body, the pain in your body? Right? What is the feeling of that pain? Right? What is the mind state? What is going on in your mind? Is there lots of aversion going on because of that? And that's the, the chitta nupasana, or yeah, is understanding what is the, the state of the mind? Greed, hatred, delusion, what's in your mind? And then uh, understanding the mind objects. So the, what are the thoughts that arise because of that mind state, because of the feeling, because of the pain in the body? So that's all four of those foundations of mindfulness in one experience. So I, you know, I've heard different teachers say different things. Try it, see what works for you. Can you explain what it means to take the eight lifetime precepts? Are you able to take the five lifetime precepts? I like this question because I love the eight lifetime precepts. <clears throat> the eight lifetime precepts is, is a wonderful um, way of enhancing your practice. Right? If you already follow the five precepts, and you know, you're just doing the, doing the refuge and the precepts, and this is how you live, the eight lifetime precepts are a good step up for a variety of different reasons. For one, it's a, it gives you a sense of, of deepening your practice. Right? The eight uh, lifetime precepts are, are simply the five precepts, but with um, instead of just lying, all of right speech is included. No divisive speech, no harsh speech, no gossip. Some papa lapa, blah, 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 blah. That's the Pali word. Banteji loves to do that. So, um, and, the, and then added on to that is right livelihood. So it's not like it's a very different than what you're already doing following the five precepts. Um, and plus it's, it's a wonderful ceremony and you get a cool Pali name, Jayantha. I got that almost five years ago at Lifetime Precepts right here. You know, um, it's not going to be my name once I become a monk, but it's a name I've had for a long time. Um, and it's just, a, it, it was a, a meaningful, appropriate experience for me at the time that I always, you know, tre treasured and cherished. And as soon as I became a monk, I was like, I want to be up there so I can, you know, tie the, the pair to Newell. And, and I love coming to the eight lifetime precept ceremonies. So if it's something that you feel like you'd like to, to do, Definitely do it. Um, so the five lifetime precepts are the five precepts. There's no like five lifetime precepts. The next step up from the eight lifetime precepts are the eight monastic precepts, which is what all of you guys have taken when, since you've been here at the monastery. Um, I'm pretty much sure that the majority of you probably don't want to take those home. So the eight lifetime precepts um, is a good in-between yeah, for your practice. Ooh, what is a mental formation? That's a tough one. <laughs> Can you give an example of how to investigate a specific mental formation? Well, mental formation, the Pali word is sankara. And sankara is a notorious Pali word because it can mean a lot of different things and different teachers say different things. Um, but really, uh, another way of, of translating sankara is volitional formations. So these are actions of volition, actions of will, if you want to 
call it that. I don't know if that's the best way to say it. But it's this, these are an actions that you are choosing to do. So a volitional formation could be a thought. You know, the, 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 this is the, the impetus of the, any action that you're going to take in your mind, the beginning of that. And how to investigate that, I guess the, you examine that thought, examine the intention behind that thought. So examining your intention is very, very important in everything you do. Like I, was, I gave the example of the walking and the sitting meditation. There's some times where I'm walking meditation and I realize like, oh, I have to do sitting soon. And I'm like, oh. And then as soon as I see that intention, I say, okay. And then I just go right down and I sit. So I go directly counteract that negative, um, that unskillful mind state of, I don't want to do this with going and doing it. So I saw my intention and I took the steps to go against that intention. I intended to fight that. So <clears throat> you're examining your intention, examining the thought that comes up, examining the judgments regarding that thought. Try to see where that thought came from, the reason why that thought came up. Most of the time, it's very hard to, to see where our, our thoughts came from or why they came up. Um, but the more we practice, the deeper we can see into these levels of, um, of mental activity, the more we can see and understand why these thoughts are arising that arise. What is the Buddhist way to deal with small annoyances in everyday life, such as someone who cuts you off while driving, a lazy coworker, or an unfriendly cashier? <clears throat> the Buddha actually gives uh, five ways of working, of dealing with uh, an annoying person. That's the, that's the Sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya. I don't remember the, the specific name, but it's five ways of, of dealing with an uh, annoying um, person basically and four of those ways are the Brahma Viharas the metta boundless friendliness um, compassion right uh, karuna uh, mudita appreciative joy upeka equanimity and then the, the last one is understanding that this person is um, subject to their karma, right? They whatever whatever they're doing, whatever actions they take, they are um, the heir of that karma. So when you're dealing with <coughs> people like this, or first of all, like uh, an unfriendly cashier, have you ever actually worked as a cashier in a real retail store? It's probably one of the levels of hell. I think <laughs> it's really it's rough. Because the people, in general, the problem is that people are so wrapped up in their own goings-on. People are so, feel like they're so busy that they can't take a second to help somebody else or to be kind to somebody else. <clears throat> and that's why uh, become, doing the cashier stuff, doing all that, ever since the, after I, I had that experience, I realized this person might be having a really crappy day or... It, the 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 you know twenty people on that line before me, maybe they were just they were so busy they were on their phone they didn't pay attention to this person one bit. I'm going to say hi. Do they have a name tag? I'm going to call them by their name. Right? I'm going to you know just be a person who's kind because I remember that I remember lines and lines of people, and the one person who was smiled at me and said hello and even said. Two, two seconds of words to me, it changed my mind state. My mind state all of a sudden became joyful and happy and content. Now, of course, that might have lasted up until the next person who was like that. <clears throat> but you remember that feeling because it's such an, emo it's such an impactful feeling. So we, we, when you're doing something like that for somebody, what are you doing? 
You're practicing goodwill towards them. That's metta. Metta is limitless goodwill for all beings. And that is actually metta in action. You know, this, the metta of sitting down and, and expanding your mind and, and metta to all beings. And there's the metta of holding the door for open for somebody. There's the metta of just simply smiling and saying hello. That is metta as well. That is giving a gift of friendliness to other people and also to yourself. Because when you do things like this, you feel good about it. <clears throat> you know, it's funny. One of the, the smallest things I remember uh, in my last year of work, I was a foster and adoptive home recruiter. And there was one day and I was running, I had a, an event with 20 vendors and like 50 people and I was going all of this and I'm running, I'm focused and I see a father walk in with like four kids and it's like a circus. This father is just trying to, you know, make sure all the kids are together and all this stuff. And I'm walking by and I, I thought for a split second, I'm just going to press the elevator open, the door, boom. So I took a split second to open that elevator door. And he was able to just walk right in. He didn't have to stop with the kids and all this stuff. And I thought to myself, you know, afterwards, like, yeah, that was actually pretty cool. I'm glad I did that. And it made me feel happy. And so doing these kind of things makes you, it helps you. It's um, actually, there is a, <clears throat> one of the practices is um, uh, a recollection of your good deeds, recollection of the good things that you do it helps you. So when you act like this, when you act with metta towards somebody, the annoyances go away. Annoyances are aversion. And so instead of pushing away, you're basically embracing. Right? You're understanding this person is a being in samsara just like me. It all pretty much freaking sucks no matter what position we are no matter what we're doing what you know we're, we're all stuck in this hellhole together you know at least the least we can do is kind of help each other and you know, have some good positive experiences while we're here <laughs> cuts you off while driving wonder what i have to tell another quick story just for this um what i learned uh, again, being from New Jersey, I, I learned to take these kind of things like driving um, and these traffic and all this stuff as a lesson, understanding what's going on with this. And so when somebody would just cut in front of me or whatever, and they didn't wave, okay, I understand, it's just whatever, right? But, but you, when somebody cuts in front of you or you let somebody in, right, and they don't wave, what happens? Oh, that blankety blank no manners what did his father mother taught him this than that <clears throat> and so when you, metta and all this kind of stuff when you let somebody in no expectations they, they, they might thank you they might not it's okay what you did was a good thing it, it's not diminished by the fact that they didn't say hello or they didn't wave thanks one, the reason I bring this up is because one experience, this one guy, I let this guy in. He goes to, wait, to pick up his hand. I was like, oh, this guy's so nice. And then he gives me the middle finger. And I thought to myself, why is he? <laughs> For what? I let the guy in. I don't know. But it, it's just a, it always makes me laugh to think of that experience. <clears throat> How do you analyze a thought into five aggregates? For example, if I feel hunger, if a thought comes where I feel sadness, or two, oh, okay, I'm sorry. One, if I feel hunger, two, if a thought comes where I feel sadness. Um, hmm. Well, what I, will, what I will say is that a, a lot of times you can't. The five aggregates... Some of this stuff is, is, it's all happening so fast and together that you, you can't really kind of like, okay, well, that's consciousness or that's a volitional formation. A lot of times in, in your actual experience, you really can't kind of say, you know, delineate between, discriminate between what is what. Um, <clears throat> but if a thought comes where you feel sadness, 
It's really examining the thought, trying to see where that thought might have come from or what the mind state that you have in your mind. When we talk about uh, examining mind as mind, it's just a, a, basic, a basic tone in your mind. It's not a verbalization. It's just like it may be if you're uh, feeling very, uh, ang- uh, very aversive. It's just like a heaviness in your mind. Right? There's, no, there's no words in your mind to explain that. It's just this is what you're f- seeing in your mind. And so you can examine that <clears throat> and uh, see how the thought comes from that. Um, and examine the interplay between all of these aspects of your mind. How do I make sure that I don't unintentionally harm myself in my practice and to improve the ability to discern this? When you examine your experiences, when you examine your choices, you see, well, man, this was really harmful to myself. And, and I also hurt this other person, right? And so that's your, that's your insight. That's your wisdom. And so the next time this happens, you know, you realize, maybe you think a little bit quicker, you remind yourself of that previous experience. Oh, okay, well... I have to change this. We'll use an example of anger, right? So anger comes into your mind. I'm pretty sure all of us understand that for the most part, anger coming into your mind is not really a skillful thing. It's not a good thing. Um, And the reason being is because what happens when you let that anger out? When you let that anger out, you can harm yourself and you can harm somebody else whether verbally, physically, whatever, right? So when you, um, you get angry, and maybe you, uh, a coworker makes you angry, and you get home, and then you yell at a, your child or whatever. It's like you, don't, you don't even have to, you know, the anger doesn't even have to be harmful to the person that, that you, quote-unquote, think made you angry in the first place, um, Pro tip, actually, nobody can actually make you angry. You make yourself angry. You see that in the practice. But, um, but so then you understand that, wow, this situation was no good. Why did I do this? You know? And so that's how you do it, over and over and over again, examining this and contemplating that experience. Right? Of course, we, sometimes we know people who might just, you know, 30 years they do the same thing over and over again they get angry and then they harm people and it just goes on and on and on and you maybe you don't see any change or any uh, improvement in their lives well, they're not examining they're not really trying to see this with it, with insight they're just going with the flow of their emotions of the emotional roller coaster and that is the opposite of what we want to do we want to be heedful, not heedless. In the Dhammapada, there's the, a verse where the Buddha talks about those who are heedless, um, those who are heedful never die. Those who are heedless are as if dead already, the walking dead, zombies. So we don't want to be zombies. We want to be heedful, mindful, and aware, and to... <clears throat> learn from our experiences. The ability to examine and to learn is what allows us to change. We can have experiences if we don't examine them correctly and learn from them, we won't change. It says, this is not a question. I think this is just a note to me. I don't know. Before going forth, what are the most important things to consider? Uh, I'm going to see if I can save that for last. 
Buddhism teaches that we have no soul. That is a hard concept for me to grasp. Is the soul like the ego that dissolves as we gain wisdom on our walk towards enlightenment? It's hard for you to grasp because you don't see it with your own insight. And that's okay. None of us here do, probably. <laughs> Maybe we have various levels. It's been my experience that anatta, not self, is not something like, it's not like a eureka moment. Like all of a sudden, oh, I have a self. Eureka, oh, I don't have a self. No, it's something that through the practice, you gradually chip away at. You gradually, you get little experiences of, oh, well, I thought this was me before, but now I'm not so sure. It doesn't seem like me. You know, these thoughts that arise. Well, if it's not me, then what are they? Where do they come from? And so that just fuels your further investigation into trying to, into practicing and understanding this. So, Trying to grasp it intellectually is not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to bring you anything but vexation and a perplexed mind. So I guess I would say the, the best way to answer this question is to practice. <clears throat> the Buddha taught that there is no permanent self. So what there is are processes that are arising and passing that is what we would consider to be a permanent self but when seen with insight he told us that there is no such thing I'm a first timer and would like to know how to do walking meditation Bhanteji recommended it especially when sleepy Thanks with metta. Just very briefly, I don't know if we're going to do a walking meditation um, thing here. Bhante Dhamma usually does it. I don't know. I don't know if that's on the uh, on the plan or not. But the most basic thing is you start at one end. Easy to do is start with three deep breaths, center yourself, then you just walk. You can walk at a, a normal pace. Um, you can walk slower if you want. Um, walking at a normal pace is just a very nice thing to do in the beginning. A lot less to worry about. And as you're walking, you just pay attention to the bottom of your feet. That's the very basic. Pay attention to the fact that you're walking. And pay attention to the feelings that arise from that. As you get deeper concentration, maybe you'll start to slow down and you see more. But uh, you can also speak to us after the retreat and we can talk to you a little bit more about that if Bhante Dhamma, um, if there's no actual official walking meditation training in this retreat. Bhante, you mentioned, uh, ah, this is for Bhante G. You mentioned the Udana yesterday, the story about Venerable Ananda and the well. The Buddha said, what is the need for searching when craving is uprooted? Can you explain the deeper meaning of this udana. I'm gonna. Ha I'll say you can ask Bhanteji for that one, since we're running out of time and we have uh, still some more to go here. Even though I practice meditation every day for two to four hours, wow! I don't even do that. Good job. <laughs> well two to three hours, but I often experience extreme aversion, anger, and resentment at perceived injustices. Is there a faster method to getting rid of these? Perceived injustices. That's a tough one. You know, because you know, speaking from my own experience, I've, I've pretty much gotten over what I used to consider in all the injustices in the world and being attached to that. But Every once in a while, if somebody does something to me and, and maybe I'm not in the right state of mind, I do get wrapped up in the whole, oh, I can't believe they did this to me, and blah, 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 blah. And the you know, mind goes through all of this, this whole cycle of justifying what you should do to that person and, and why they did this to me. And uh, it just goes in circles, round and around and around. Um, and sometimes it's really, really hard to 
stop that. You can't just, you know, say, okay, I stop this right now. And then all of a sudden your mind's clear. That's, that's not how it works. Um, the only thing I could say is in situations like this is to do your best to treat that as an experience. Examine it, right? That first of all, in samsara, there's no such thing as no injustice. What we, can, what we perceive to be an injustice is just samsara. It's just the way it is. Um, but we don't want it to be that way. <clears throat> Suffering is asking from the world what it can't give you, right? Yeah, which is one of the uh, quotes that I first heard from Ajahn Brahm years ago at the beginning of my practice and really blew my mind to understand that, yeah, that's right. You know, we have these expectations of how things should be. And when they're not, we don't like that. And we want to try to change it. But the only way to truly change the world is to change yourself, to eradicate greed, hatred, and delusion in your mind. Because when you do that, when you change yourself, you help change the world around you. <clears throat> it's very different than going out with picket signs and yelling and all this kind of stuff. That doesn't really get you much anywhere. And even if it does bring some kind of change, 20, 30 years later down the road, there's another kind of change. But cleansing your mind, that is... Um, the real way to, to let go of these aversion and anger. Because it's not injustice, it's just samsara. It's not injustice, it's just the way things are. It's the way how, um, the way the world is when all the beings have greed, hatred, and delusion. To think otherwise is kind of utopian. Like, what can I imagine? Is there a world where nobody has greed, hatred, and delusion? Probably not. <laughs> That's just the way it is. So you can understand it in this way. Um, that, you know, you, know, I, you know, that's not to say that if you feel like you can change something, make something better for somebody else, that you don't try it. But you don't want to be attached to the expectations of what you're trying to do. That's where you really cause yourself suffering. Expectations is... Again, that quote, asking from the world, suffering is asking from the world what you can't, what it can't give you. Regarding death and rebirth, does the consciousness alone carry the comma? Does the mind die with the body? Please explain. I'm not going to get too involved in this um, because the Buddha didn't. The Buddha did not go into details about this in the, in the uh, original, in the Nikayas. People added the details later in the Abhidhamma commentaries and all this kind of stuff. All, from all I've read, basically the Buddha, when he did talk about this stuff, he talked about the body dying and the mind moving on. That's it. So I'm not going to, you know, what, what is the actual mechanism of carrying the karma and all that kind of stuff. Any answer you're going to get is going to be from those other sources. And... I'm not really, I don't know too much about those sources to begin with, to be honest with you. So I can't really, uh, I don't want to give you all these extra um, things. Because it's really, in a way, it's not conducive to the practice, as I said before. You know, the Buddha gave four things that are unconjecturables. Right? If you try to think about these things and, and intellectualize these things you would meet with nothing but vexation and headache and one of those is the full workings of karma so it doesn't it's not conducive to the practice you can reach awakening and not know the specific how exactly karma goes from life to life okay <clears throat> By training as a monk, has your practice of meditation improved? How and why? Ooh. I, I guess briefly I would say partial, uh, half and half. Um, sometimes I look back at my lay life, my lay meditation, and I'm like, wow, you know, my meditation then was a lot more peaceful. I liked it back then. 
but of course that's me like attaching right like i said some of my the, the the deepest concentrations i've ever been in were in my office at work not sitting here on the asana <laughs> as a monk in the meditation hall so but it's really all about um in that regard it's really all about how much you have clinging in your mind right <clears throat> for me i know so as soon as i became a you know a monk or look thinking about it, it's like Oh, okay, or well now I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna be up in front of people, and I haven't attained jhanas, and I'm this and this. How am I supposed to teach this and say these things and all these things? And all of this is just extra weight, extra attachment in my mind that is keeping me from having calm and peaceful meditation. Right, and that's not just that's in general, no matter what situation you are in your life. Of course, in lay life, what is like? Oh, okay, I'm just. You know, I had all the other, my lay worries and stuff, but my meditation was just like a nice escape, a peaceful, it's nice. You know, and I was, had my insight and practice and all that. Now it's like I'm a professional or something. I'm supposed to be a professional. So I added all these expectations. And of course, expectations cause suffering. So, <clears throat> but in terms of learning how to let go of things, it's made a huge, huge difference. I didn't realize what really letting go is until I came to a monastery and started following this practice. And that, and <laughs> I still don't. I go through these phases where every once in a while I, I have this new insight of how much I'm supposed to let go and I have this like anxiety panic attack. Oh, can I actually do that? Can I do this? And I work through it and I develop and I get my confidence back and I say, yeah, I can do it. Okay, next, next level, next step. Okay, and the last one was also monastic related. Before you go forth, what are the most important things to consider? If you really, 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 really think that this is the best thing for you to do. And I had a long time between the period of time where I said, okay, I want to be a monk, and the time I came to Bhavana. It was about four years. And I'm 38 years old. I had a, a career. I had a business. I had all these things that I had to shut down to get to this point. <clears throat> so I had a lot of time to live life and to ponder and to think to myself. And one of the things I, I always did and I still do is I question myself. I, I think, what is the, most, the best lay life I can have? And the lay life I was living before I came here was pretty close to that. I pretty much had a really good lay life. Um, and then I compare that with well, living the Dhamma, right? Becoming, a, living your life for the Dhamma, practicing for awakening, and also to help who you can along the way. And for years and years, <clears throat> that while I was exact, asking myself, the, the, it always leaned much more heavily. I mean, I would literally, I would sit down, I would ask myself this question, and I would wait for an answer. And the answer almost always was towards the, yeah, I want to do this. There was a time I started developing a crush and then I started, when I asked myself the question, it started going that way again. But that was short-lived and here I am as a monk, right? So you, you really need to examine your intentions or why you want to do this. Do you really think this is something that would be best for you, right? One of the best examples, um, you know, I got a, a lot of different advice when I spoke to different monks, you know, in these four years um, between the this time I decided I want to and the time I came here. And, you know, one of the, the best pieces of advice was find a place and, and, you know, if you can, live with the monks or, or try to be around the monks a lot and, and see how they live and, and talk to them and, you know, see if that is something that you'd want to do. The other piece of advice I got was become a monk when becoming a monk and not becoming a monk is the same in your mind. Sounds like some kind of Zen koan, right? right? But it's actually much simpler than that. Um, what, the, what the bhikkhu was talking about was that people, a lot of times people come, oh, I want to be a monk, and they're all gung-ho, and they have all these expectations and they think that monk's life is going to be so much better than lay life and, and that they're going to be able to, um, you know, it'll, everything will just be so much better. And then you come to a monastery and then you realize, oh, everybody has greed, hatred, and delusion. Oh, this happens in a monastery? Really? 
I thought I was going to leave that when I left my uh, lay life. Right? So you know, the only thing that changes when you go to a monastery is your geographical location. <laughs> That's pretty much about it. You bring all of your baggage with you. You bring all of your greed, hatred, and delusion. So really examine your intentions of why you actually really want to do it. And if it's really something that you feel is, will be the most beneficial thing for you to do. And also, uh, I think I skipped over a little bit. What I, what I found was, thinking about what the monk told me and examining, I, I f- found that you know, I was okay. Whether I was a lay person or I was a monk, whatever I am, I, I'm a Samanera. You know, my, my bhikkhu ordination is in a month and a half, actually just about a month. Okay, so I become a bhikkhu. And then five years down the road, maybe I don't want to be a bhikkhu anymore. I don't know. Um, what I always have, though, is my practice. My practice, whether I'm a lay person or a, a monastic, I always have my practice. So if you're okay, you know, in that regard, then, you know, you can see that you're, you don't have too much of an attachment to this ideal version of a monastic life. Because believe me, the bubble pops. The bubble pops hard if you have an idea, a lot of idealism about monastic life and monks and all these kind of things. So I guess that's uh, pretty much what I have to say about that. Uh, I went over six minutes, so hopefully not too much. But okay, friends, thank you very much. And uh, we'll take a quick break and come back for last meditation for the night.